This is HPR episode 2194 entitled The Lowdown on What's Up in the Taiwan Strait. It is hosted by Clacky and is about 32 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is in which I respond to I don't get this whole Taiwan slash US slash China thing. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hi, I'm Klakke. Imagine for a moment a Europe where the Greek Empire never fell. It never split in two, it never disintegrated completely. Its borders just shifted a bit over the centuries. Once in a while it would get conquered in its entirety by one of its neighbors, but it only ever led to them starting to call themselves Greeks as well, and their homelands becoming part of an even greater Greek Empire. From the days of Aristotle to today, with only a few short interruptions, one continuous state. In the north, people would talk Scandinavian at home. In the southwest, people would speak Romance. In the east, people would speak Slavic at home. But we would all write in some bastardized Scandi-Germanic Romance language. And in the office, we would all speak it. Okay, maybe that language thing actually happened here. Just listen to me now, speaking bastardized Scandi-Germanic romance. But uh, we're hardly one country, and we don't call ourselves Europeans or Greeks first. But in China, this really happened. I was on the excellent Ogcast Planet IRC channel a few days ago, as always. And a topic came up and I dropped a few off-the-cuff comments about what I knew on the subject. And I figured, hey, actually, this is fodder for an HPR episode. And I'm simply going to read almost literally what I wrote about about the whole Taiwan-US-China thing. But to give you an even deeper understanding of the complexity involved and also of the weight of this whole unification thing... I'm going to have to give you some background. I'm going to try to do it quick, but it's going to take some discipline because there is so much to talk about. So let's start in 1644, then quickly move forward to 1900 and up until today, and then I'll go into what I said on IRC. Um, There's going to be a lot of Japan because Japan played a huge role in shaping Chinese history throughout the 20th century, as did the Soviet Union. So let's see, in 1644 the Qing dynasty was founded and uh, it took them almost 40 years to consolidate their grip on the whole of what was China at that point. They ruled for several hundred years and the Qing 
empire was the richest empire in the world for most of this time. <coughs> China had fertile soil and lots of people, good climate and high levels of education and uh, apart from the soil they also had other natural resources. But in the 18th and 19th centuries Europe industrialized and along with Europe the United States and uh, in the 19th century all these different countries in Europe and the United States starting started carving out pieces of China. There would be places in Guangzhou, in Shanghai, where you would not have any local Chinese police. You would have French police in the French quarters. You would have American police in the American quarters. And uh, this change also came to Japan. Japan had been... Uh, quite complacent since 1600. There had been no internal revolutions, which was usually what would drive technology and economy forward in Japan. Uh, it had been stable for almost as long as China. And then the US showed up and said, open your, uh, open your ports for trade. And whereas the Chinese empire uh, was not so quick to act and wasn't really sure how to handle this. In Japan, in 1868, there was a revolution called the Meiji Restoration, where a few clans, uh, clans slash regions, uh, went together, uh, kicked out the shogun, put the emperor in place as the ruler of the country, and started a program of intense industrialization. This affected how the country was run, it affected the military. In 1871 they had the Imperial Japanese Army, which was created and organized with the help of uh, Western military officers. And after only 20 years, uh, Japan felt powerful enough to attack its large neighbor in the west and uh, at the end of the first Sino-Japanese War 1895 Japan took possession of Taiwan. Ten years later in 1905 Japan engaged in the Russo-Japanese War and took over the Russian possessions in China. They had a railway, the land around the railway and uh, the Guangdong Lease, which was a garrison at the south end of a peninsula in the northeast, in the Manchurian region. The homelands of the Qing dynasty, the Qing imperial family, were Manchu. Um, they gained the Guangdong Lease and they placed there the Guangdong Garrison, which would become the Guangdong Army and which would uh, be a, a key player in events to come. Strengthened by this victory, they soon declared uh, Korea their protectorate. Up until that point, Korea had been a vassal state of the Qing Empire. And only five years later, in 1910, they annexed Korea outright. 
Now, at this point, people inside China had become quite upset with the imperial family's inability to handle all these external threats. So, uh, in 1911 was the first of a series of rebellions that overthrew the Qing government and aimed to create a republican government instead. The revolution was led by Dr. Sun Yat-sen, who had received training in the Soviet Union, but he wanted to create a democratic, uh, a social democracy in China. However, uh, the revolution created a huge chaos. There was no unification in the country. The regions were ruled by regional warlords, and uh, Dr. Sun's newly founded republic failed over and over again. Uh, first, it fell into monarchy again. There was a new emperor. They created a new revolution to kick him out, create a new republican government. But in the end, they were not in full control. The country was in chaos. In 1925, Dr. Sun dies and his friend General Chang takes over the party. He is much more aggressive and much more successful in unifying the country. Uh, but he also cleared the left wing of the party, which drove them all to the Communist Party. So by 1928, there were some local warlords that had uh, an alliance with General Chang. There were others that had been conquered by the party. And there was a significant part of the country that was instead controlled by the Communist Party. Meanwhile, uh, the Japanese renegade Guangdong army in the northeast continued making trouble. Uh, troops that were supposed to be guarding the railway were attacking and raiding nearby villages. And the military in the area were playing their own games with local warlords, assassinating several of them. And uh, finally... They arranged an incident, a false flag terrorist attack, uh, to create an excuse to take over the whole area. And they created a new Manchu country, Manchu Guo, and they put the old Qing emperor on the throne as a king of this country. But it was a, a complete puppet state controlled by the Japanese. Now, this was against direct orders from uh, the Japanese government. But at this point, they couldn't very well take it back, so they had to approve the whole thing uh, in retrospect. Yeah, sure, we meant to do that all along. And at this point, the officers involved in these incidents had gained a uh, very large influence in the Japanese society. Now, as this was happening in the Northeast, um, General Chang was still chasing communists in the rest of China. His idea was that to fight the external threat, we have to first eliminate the internal threat. But one of his close associates, uh, General Zhang, who was the son of another General Zhang that had been killed uh, in, in the Northeast, he was the commander of the Northeast Army. Uh, he arrested 
General Chiang to force him to make peace with the communists. This was not successful and General Zhang was put in prison. But finally, uh, General Chiang made peace with the communists anyway uh, to create the unified front to fight the Japanese. This was in 1936 and already in 1937 the Japanese launched a full-scale invasion. They took Shanghai, they took uh, Nanjing and I guess you have all heard of the Nanjing massacre which is the the main reason why today 80 years later uh, many people in China still hate the Japanese. Now in 1945, when the Second World War finally ended, uh, Japan surrendered Taiwan back to China. And now with the external threat removed, the civil war went back into full strength. Now the thing is that during the war with the Japanese, it had been mostly the nationalist troops that had been fighting the Japanese. And the communists had been able to consolidate build up their strength. So in one decisive battle in 1948 with 4 million soldiers on each side, uh, the nationalists took a big loss and they had to retreat. And one year later, they had all moved to Taiwan and uh, the communists controlled all of mainland China and they proclaimed the uh, People's Republic of China. Now, internationally, uh, Chiang's government was still considered the legitimate government of China, even though they controlled less than 1% of the country. So 1% of China was controlled by the legitimate government and 99% were controlled by communist rebels. For a time... Uh, People thought that this was a temporary situation. The communists would finally <clears throat> take over the last percent as well. And the American government wasn't really considering supporting Chiang's troops as it, it seemed like a, a, a lost cause, really. But then in 1950, the Korean War happened. The Soviet Union and China uh, went in to support North Korea in an attack on South Korea. And the United States president put a fleet in the Taiwan Strait to separate Taiwan from the mainland and prevent any further conflict uh, erupting there as well. And from that point on, supporting Taiwan was part of uh, the U.S. strategy for maintaining peace in the region. And of course, for holding communism back, this was the beginning of the hot cold war in Southeast Asia. Now, in the 60s, there was a break in the relationship between the Soviet Union and China because of dogmatic differences and also because of national interest. And China became a, a sort of third party in the Cold War. And China and the US started uh, sharing interests in the geopolitical arena. So, for example, China supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to push out the Soviets from there. Uh, the U.S. even sold weapons to China to strengthen them against the Soviets. And in 1971, Nixon went to visit China as the first American president to visit the People's Republic of China. 
and China entered uh, the UN and kicked out the Republic of China as the representative of China in the UN. Now, the Republic of China had received an offer to stay on as a separate country in the UN, but both the People's Republic and the Republic had a one-China policy. That meant either you have diplomatic relations with them or you have diplomatic relations with us. There is no two Chinas. There is only one China, and we're the legitimate China. So one of them had to go. Now, during this time, it wasn't the case that China was a communist dictatorship and uh, the Republic of China or Taipei or Taiwan was uh, a flourishing democracy. No. Uh, Taiwan was a military dictatorship. In 1949, when the communists took over, uh, the Republic of China enacted the temporary provisions effective during the period of communist rebellion. Well, this communist rebellion didn't seem to stop, so this law stayed in place up until 1991. And uh, Taiwan was under martial law from 49 all the way up until 87. Now, there were elections held but only for the seats of Taiwan. And because the Republic of China was uh, their legislative yuan, was the legislative yuan of all of China, and they had representatives from all the different provinces in China. But because they didn't control those provinces, there hadn't been any elections since 1947. And in any case... Because the country was under martial law, uh, there were no other parties allowed in the Kuomintang. But in 1986, for the first time, uh, there were people from the Democratic Progressive Party voted into the Legislative UN. The party was illegal, but nobody did anything about it. Uh, part of the reason was probably that General Chung had died already 10 years earlier and his son was now running the country and he had been gradually uh, loosening up the harsh provisions uh, that had been in place for so many years, for so many decades. At the same time, <clears throat> Mao had also died in the 70s on the Chinese side and in 1978, <clears throat> Deng Xiaoping started putting in place economic reforms. He created a special economic zones like, for example, Shenzhen and later also parts of Shanghai and so on. So gradually, the two governments started reaching out to each other. So much so that in 1991, they each on their side founded... Uh, semi-governmental, inofficial diplomatic organization. On the one side, you had the Straits Exchange Foundation, and on the other side, you had the Association for Relations Across the Taiwan Straits. And these were proxy organizations so that they could have official, inofficial contact with each other and discuss how they should proceed further. 
1992, the chairman of these organizations met in Hong Kong, which was neutral ground at that time because it was still a British colony, and agreed to agree that there was only one China, and they agreed to disagree who was the legitimate government of that China. In the meantime, the democratic reforms in Taiwan and the changing political climate meant that in 1996, when Taiwan were going to have their first direct election of a president, mainland China was very worried that they would elect a democratic progressive party president, which would risk upsetting this delicate balance between the two sides. China wanted to talk to the Kuomintang. They didn't want to talk to the DPP. So they threatened the population by doing military exercises just in connection to the election. And the United States responded, Bill Clinton responded, by sending an aircraft carrier there. And the Chinese government uh, stopped their exercise early. That time, the Taiwanese... Uh, people chose another Kuomintang president. But in 2000, they elected their first Democratic Progressive Party president. Now, the official policy of the Kuomintang is that it, at some point, we want to reunify China. Of course, they're hoping that it will be on their terms. And at the same time, the People's Republic of China also want to reunify China. Of course, that means they would take over Taiwan as the province they consider it to be. Um, but the Democratic Progressive Party, they are looking at Taiwanese independence, scrapping the Republic of China and creating a new Republic of Taiwan that has no ambition to take over the rest of China or to merge with it. So the reason that this status quo is so attractive to mainland China and to Taiwan or those on Taiwan that do support it is that as long as the situation is a bit unclear, then we can still at some point in the future unify the country again. But if Taiwan declares independence, there is a risk that that moment may be gone and it may never be possible to reunite China again. So for eight years, while there was a DPP president in Taiwan, uh, relations between Taiwan and mainland China were very cool, uh, in the negative sense. Uh, but in 2008, they had another Kuomintang president voted in, and immediately the Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang agreed to open up what they called the Three Links they, for the first time, had functioning posts between the two areas and direct flights and uh, an opportunity for uh, Taiwanese and mainland companies to invest in the other area. Of course, if you know that the iPhone came 2007 and the iPhone is made by Foxconn, which is a Taiwanese company, and it has factories in China. This sounds confusing, but that's in Shenzhen. That's a special economic zone. What happened in 2008 is all of China became accessible to Taiwanese investment. 
So things were looking nice and rosy again uh, across the strait. But in Taiwan, many people were really worried that what are all these new trade agreements uh, going to lead to? They felt that this is going to lead to increased dominance of Beijing over Taipei and we will become dependent on them and they will force us to unify the country on their terms. And this sparked the 2014 Sunflower Student Movement, which was a, a protest movement uh, against these softened uh, relations with mainland China. But the president pressed on and in 2015, President Ma of Taiwan and President Xi of China met for the first time in Singapore. It was the first time that one president from the one government had met a president from the other government since the split in 1949. But the people of Taiwan didn't appreciate it and in 2016, this year in May, they voted a DPP president again. Now what you have to realize is that 88% of the population in Taiwan were already there when the Kuomintang came to the island. They had been living under Japanese rule for 50 years and despite what the Japanese did during the war, uh, when they were managing Taiwan as a colony, what they were trying to create a model colony. People on Japanese Taiwan had a very good life and when the Nationalist Party came there, established base there, they started enforcing some very unpopular policies. For example, the official language of the Republic of China is standard Chinese, it's Mandarin. Most people on Taiwan don't speak Mandarin at home. 70% of the population speaks uh, what you might call Taiwanese or uh, Hokkien Taiwanese, which is a uh, southern non-Chinese language. It's a different language family within the Chinese big family of languages than Mandarin. So it's not mutually intelligible with Mandarin. You need to learn Mandarin in school. And 12% speak Hakka, which is from another branch of the Chinese language tree. So they don't necessarily feel like they have so much in common with these guys coming from the mainland and basically taking over their island where they had been left alone before. So this is part of the tension within Taiwanese politics. It's not just complicated between mainland and Taiwan. It's complicated within Taiwan. Uh, most people don't want to declare independence, mostly because uh, they are worried what what is going to happen. Will China attack us? What's going to be the consequences? But very few, it's like 2%, want unification right now. And only uh, 10 to 20% want unification at some point in the future. Most people just want the status quo because it's working and 
please don't upset the apple cart. So, wow, that was a, a long background, much longer than I <clears throat> was trying to make it, but I'm not going to cut it down anymore, then I'll never get this published. So let's go. Here, here's what I wrote on IRC. China doesn't want Taiwan to be independent because that would be a loss of prestige to China. There are no technical details about it. It's all about symbolism. And what I meant by that is uh, someone was asking, so is this because they need access to the trade routes through the straits? It's not really anything like that. This is about unification of China. It's been uh, split up so many times between different parties, so it's become a very important part of the Chinese self-image that we need to be a single unified country. That's, that's what's going on here. Okay, let's move on. The China thing is a really interesting thing to unpack. First of all, if you ask the traditional ruling party on Taiwan, the Kuomintang, there is no country called Taiwan. The Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party agree that there is only one China and Taiwan is simply a province of that China. Where they disagree is whether the true government of the whole is in Beijing or in Taipei. Fun fact, the official capital of the Republic of China is Nanjing, which is not under Republic of China control. Also, some de facto parts of India and all of Mongolia is officially part of the Republic of China according to their constitution. And this is especially interesting since they um, recognized Mongolia as an independent country in 1949. But they still kept it in their constitution and ah, really it's our, it's our land. <laughs> <clears throat> if you fly from Beijing, there are domestic flights and then there are international flights and domestic flights to Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan. I'm not going to go into the whole one country, two systems thing right now, but just quickly, Hong Kong and Macau are part of China according to everyone, uh, but they are really in practice, in day-to-day -day life, they are treated like foreign countries. You need a, a visa to visit China if you are a foreigner in Hong Kong. And if you are living in mainland China, you need a permit to go to Hong Kong. <clears throat> so the US and UN stands since 1972 is there is one China and its government is in Beijing. I was incorrect there, actually. The US formally recognized the People's Republic in 1979. But at the same time, US is giving military support to Taipei, which, according to Beijing, is an unruly province. As long as the status quo holds that Taipei claims to rule all of China and Beijing claims to rule all of China and no outsider that matters challenges that, China, both of them, is happy. It works. There are extended business relations between the two jurisdictions and most of the electronics made in China are made in factories owned by Taiwanese companies. Both the Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang hope that in the long term this can gradually creep toward the unification of China. If Taiwan would declare independence, that would mean war. Now, the current ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party, officially support driving toward the Taiwanese rather than a Chinese national identity and at some point independence. 
They are being very careful about it, though, because they are also aware of how Beijing would react if they went out and did it. Also, while they do control the majority of the legislative yuan, there is a significant minority in Taiwan that adhere to a Chinese identity. They don't want to upset China, and they don't want formal independence. The current quirky situation works, and barriers have been coming down over the years. Relations are abnormal yet normal. On the rhetorical level, it's all messed up. In practice, you can fly between the island and the mainland. You can conduct business and send posts, etc. When Republic of China and People's Republic of China representatives meet, there are no embassies or consulates involved because neither acknowledges the other as a country. Neither president will call the other president because that would imply they represent the country rather than a rebel faction inside what the other side considers China. So, when Trump goes on Twitter and says the president of Taiwan called me today to wish me congratulations on winning the presidency, thank you. That's a huge scandal in the eyes of Beijing. There is no president of Taiwan. And to imply so is to imply that Taiwan is a country and should be independent. That's as short as as I can make it, but that's the lowdown on what's up in the Taiwan Straits. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club, and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.